0: Welcome listeners in podcast land, whether you're raising the roof because the roof is on fire, knocking on heaven's door, or pressing your face against the round window, this is the Beyond Ring Podcast, where we explore faith out of bounds.
1: This is episode five, to eternity and beyond. Sin and Salvation. Could there be two bigger, scarier, and more divisive words in Christian history, other than liturgical dance? No matter which direction you head on this topic, there's a host of questions at every turn. This topic, perhaps more than any other, has been probably the biggest cause of people walking away from the church, unable to reconcile the the landmine of questions and and convoluted thinking around some of these concepts. Salvation is as you would know, about being saved. From what, you may and should well ask? Well, it's been the whole box and dice, whether it's being saved from this earth to a heavenly resort, from sin, from hell, from ourselves. Essentially, salvation centers around something that Val Webb talked a lot about in episode three, the human condition, which is the recognition that something in us needs addressing and a pathway forward is required. Various traditions have spoken about this in terms of a movement from bondage to to liberation, from disharmony to harmony. The Christian tradition, sin to salvation. Good, fine, great. But what we have perhaps failed to realize is that today's Christian understandings of the human condition and God's involvement in all of that has not always been the same. Our understandings have evolved and yet our concepts and our language haven't really evolved with them. Which means that today we have this concoction of all sorts of, of contradictions and culturally borrowed ideas that worked really well for the eras they were created for, but are now proving for many of us to be grossly inadequate and, and distorting when adopted for today, as though attempting to squeeze into clothes we'd, we'd long since grown out of. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says For too long, we've read scripture with 19th century eyes and 16th century questions. It's time we get back to reading with first century eyes and with 21st century questions.
2: <laughs> wow. Um, salvation? Uh, no, I don't really have a clear idea of what salvation is. Salvation is. I don't think I believe in the need to be saved
3: a continuous state of being. Without all the guilt and morality that goes
1: along with the idea of sin, salvation is the feeling that no matter how bad things get, no matter how fallen humanity becomes, there's always a chance that we can redeem ourselves. There's always this sense
3: of hope. So why we all conforming to something that isn't sorted Making decisions based on other's thoughts Before we've even thought it. Consumed by only quantity Numbers we can't afford it. time will only tell when that picture becomes distorted Let us see passwords coming What majority have accepted that our heads holding and encourage the greedily misdirected. That our needs be consumed by the given to the rejected. Let us see it brought and is protected. Come the late night news, the damage, the dreadful deaths, the pain, the rapes, the murder, the words under our breath. Power we choose to mumble, words that don't appeal. It ain't saying curse, but yet worse, no one will heal Come on, late night news. Do we view a world that's hurting? A struggling society, lacking love, and only burning? Do we capture the words we think, opinions we all possess? And see a world that truly cares, and our love is truly expressed. It's not the sadness that comes, but the dread and the sad news. So it's an to love can heal, as long as that is all we do. So, a focus heart, and heart is love. Then are we truly doing enough? I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Hope until we get it. Hopeless till we find. Hope until we get it. Hopeless till we find.
1: question we have to ask is, is it possible we actually need some saving from our ideas about salvation? Today's topic is an explosion of questions such as, is sin really something you're born into? Has there been a defect in human manufacturing?
0: Is salvation really handed out on the basis of agreement with certain theological propositions?
1: Is there really a cosmic balance sheet satisfied only by the death of God's Son? Is there another way to see
0: salvation other than a ticket to heaven?
1: Why do I need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb? Is that preferable to any of the other hair and body lotions on the market today? And why didn't someone alert me to these options earlier? Some of the terrible ways we've answered these questions stem from an unhelpful reading of scripture which Walter Brueggemann and Meryl Blair helped free us from last week. So in acknowledging that there are some potential deficiencies in our language about sin and salvation, how can we talk about these concepts in the most helpful and life-giving way? It was our hope that our guest might help us discover whether there's new language available, new ways of thinking and talking about the human condition that offer us a potential pathway forward.
0: Our guest this episode is undoubtedly one of the most hot-topic, button-pushing figures in the worldwide church over the past 30 years, Bishop John Shelby Spong. Throughout his career as as an Episcopal priest and bishop, he has inspired praise and gratitude amongst the marginalised Christians whose causes he has championed, as well as hostile resistance from traditional Christians whom he has so boldly challenged. Like many reformers and trailblazers, he does not mince words or hold back. He's known to call a spade a spade, and sometimes to use that spade to smack y'all, or at least smack your church, upside the head if our faith practices, allow racism, fundamentalism, sexism or homophobia to fester under the guise of religiosity. Now remember, the Beyonding podcast is about seeking voices who will challenge us and offer us a view from beyond our current horizons. Jack Spong is such a voice and has been such a voice for the global church for decades. You may not agree with everything he says, but you have to address the questions and problems he raises.
1: Per Snag answering.
2: Or not, as the case may be. Glad to meet you both.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time. It's lovely to be speaking to you. I, it's, it's weird to have a person when for so long you've been a surname. Sometimes
2: in Australia I've even been made a verb. <laughs> <laughs> Some, somebody said, have you been sponged yet? So I thought I'd become a verb. <laughs>
1: That's right. The episode we're going to talk to you, or the focus of this episode, is sin and salvation. Now, we speak with a lot of people for whom the church is becoming increasingly challenging to engage with, and maybe perhaps struggling with relevance, and the episode that we're looking at today is perhaps one of the primary reasons, this whole biz of salvation. But before we get to it, can you tell us a little bit about you and the faith of your childhood? Give us a little bit of a background.
2: Well, I was raised in North Carolina in what we call the Bible Belt of of this country. It's a part of the country that supported slavery and later supported segregation. Basically, it's a part of the country that would be opposed to equality for women and and be quite homophobic. And so I sort of spent a lot of my time uh, overcoming those prejudices. The church I was raised in was an Anglican church, very evangelical Anglican church, not unlike Sydney Anglicans. And and they taught me that segregation was the will of God, that women were created inferior to men, that it was okay to hate other religions, and especially the Jews, and that homosexuals were either mentally sick or morally depraved. And they quoted the Bible to support each of those possibilities. So I had to spend an awful lot of my life overcoming the prejudices that were in, uh, put on me as a child. And the way you do that... Uh, I think is to go deeply into the Christian story and deeply into the biblical narrative. Most people that are fundamentalist or evangelicals or conservative Catholics who are sure that they have the truth, most people have never read the Bible. If they read it in its entirety, you would never want to call it the Word of God. You don't want to blame God for some of the things that are in the Bible, like slaves obey your masters, wives obey your husbands, homosexuals should be put to death. Those are all in the Bible. And if you take those words literally, there'd hardly be a soul left that was still alive if you had applied the biblical norm. So we, what we do is to pick and choose to support our prejudices, pick and choose verses out of the Bible. And if you engage the Bible deeply enough, you discover that it's about life and not about judgment. It's about fulfillment and not about sin. It's uh, it's, it's, God's call to each of us to be all that we can be. The, The Bible... Did not drop from heaven, fully written, divided into chapters and verses, and probably in the King James version, the Bible grew over a period of at least a thousand years. And if you line it up in the order in which it was written, you can see it changing. You can see it evolving. You can see it addressing issues in a very different way. And the same thing is true about the creeds of the Christian Church. They actually are the product of the fourth century. They're not the product of the Bible at all. Uh, the Bible would would not engage the issues the same way the creeds do. The, the virgin birth, for example, which is central in the creeds, doesn't appear in the New Testament until the ninth decade. Paul didn't know anything about it. Mark didn't know anything about it. It appears in Matthew, and it disappears when you get to John. Now, that's, a, that's a, something most people don't know because they think that, that those aspects of the Christian story are, are universally revealed by God, and, and, and so just the study of the Bible puts you in a very different place. Uh, and the tragedy with most Christianity is that we haven't engaged the Bible nearly deeply enough. And if you don't, I think you reject it and become a part of the secular society. I don't think there's any reason to make to try to make sense out of stuff that doesn't make sense. Stars do not wander through the sky so slowly that wise men can keep up with them. Stars do not announce human births. Angels do not cut through midnight sky to sing to hillside shepherds. Those are all mythological expressions. And they should never have been treated literally, but that's the way we did until we began to learn some things about the Bible that we didn't know before, which basically started in the 18th century.
1: In light of your early church experience, what kept you within the Christian tradition and what continues to give you life in staying within the Christian story?
2: Well, I'd say normally when people come to awarenesses of of how distorted the Christian story is, they abandon it. For reasons I don't fully understand, that isn't what I did. I decided to go more deeply into it. That may have come out of my own neurotic background. Uh, You know, what Christianity does for so many people is to provide a, a system of security. I was raised in a home with a father who was an alcoholic and a mother who had not finished the ninth grade of education and who was functionally illiterate. And My father died when I was 12, and my mother did not have the ability to make enough money to keep our family together. And so it was a real struggle. And there was something about the Christian faith that gave me a home away from home. If I didn't have an earthly father who would take care of me, I had a heavenly father that would take care of me. And this was enormously comforting. I'm not sure I would have gotten through those early teenage years.
0: You mentioned before so many people, um, so many of the difficulties that you've identified, the way that church uses the Bible and so on. This causes so many people to wander away from the church. They just they just throw it in because because they don't see any of the answers. But you said you went you engaged deeper, You, you went deeper into the Bible. What what is it that prevents the broader church from doing that, from engaging this text that we center ourselves around more deeply?
2: Well, I think it's because we're scared to death that if we go into it, it's going to disappear. Uh, There are some people who think if it's not literally true, it can't be true at all. Uh, A book that's written between 1000 BCE and about 140 of this common era, which are the dates around the Bible, that will always reflect attitudes of the people who lived in that era that you and I don't believe. And they believe the earth was the center of a three-tiered universe, for example. And we're on the other side of Galileo and Copernicus and Kepler and Einstein and Stephen Hawking. And a lot of people, we know that's not the way the universe is. We know that God does not live above the sky and periodically hang a a, a new candle or a new light in the sky to announce Jesus' birth. or, Or drag one across the floor of heaven so slowly that wise men can keep up with it and and have that star sort of equipped with a GPS system so that it'll guide the wise men to where they're supposed to go. Uh, we know that doesn't make sense in today's world. On the other on the other side, in the topic that uh, you want to get to, uh, we live on the other side of Charles Darwin. The Christian church does not like Charles Darwin. They have a difficult time accepting his his understandings, despite the fact that Darwin wanted to be an Anglican priest before he became a naturalist. But Charles Darwin has changed the way you look at the world, and it doesn't do any good to try to deny that Darwin is correct. Every medical school in the world operates on Darwinian principles today. So that now, fundamentalist Christians or or Catholic conservative Catholic Christians who don't want to accept the insights of Charles Darwin, it's just they're just not intelligent, is what it amounts to. You can't deny these realities. Our whole world operates on Darwinian principles. But you see, the Christian myth, the primary Christian myth that we've been operating under since the fourth century is that the world was created good and perfect and that human beings were the final act of that good and perfect tradition and that human beings disobeyed God and fell into sin and so had to be expelled from perfection, expelled from God's presence, expelled from the Garden of Eden. And we can't get back in and we can't save ourselves, so God has to rescue us with some divine initiative So we tell the Jesus story of of God coming out of the sky above the earth, incarnating himself into the person called Jesus of Nazareth and paying the price for human sin, which is a really strange idea that God pays the price by killing the son. And so you get washed in the blood of the lamb. And and all of these these images are so grotesque that it's hard to believe that people still use them, but you still hear them when you go to church regularly. You hear them in our hymns, you hear them in our prayer, you hear them in in our sermons and we really that message is just unbelievable now if the if the primary way you tell the christian story has become unbelievable then you either change the way you're telling the story or you give it up there's no middle ground in that and so now, what has happened in the last 200 years in christian theology in the academy is that we've been wrestling with new ways to tell the, the story and they don't come out with original sin they don't come out with a perfect creation which we ruined and fell into original sin and God had to come and rescue us. And so the idea of of Jesus as the Divine Rescuer makes little sense to modern men and women. And so, now, do you pitch the whole story? Well, a lot of people do. But I think there's another way of looking at it, and I think that what we need to recognize is that we are evolving into a new kind of humanity. And that maybe the divinity of Christ was not that he was a divinely incarnated being, but that he was one who was so deeply and fully human that he transcended the limits of humanity and placed us into a different relationship with that which we call divinity. And I think you can keep the Christian faith in its traditional forms, but at the same time open it up in a very dramatically different way. And basically what I've done in my career is, is to try to redefine Christianity in terms of the assumptions that modern people can make. I'm Beryl and I'm a Rotarian. I've been going to my church for 70 years. Reading the Old Testament is worse than when I watch Game of Thrones. I don't mind the nudity.
0: That's right, it's time for Beryl's Advocate.
2: It seems pretty difficult to hold my baby great granddaughter
0: and
3: think of her as a sinner, even accounting for the apocalyptic havoc she wreaks in her
2: nappies. Are we really inherently sinful or fallen? Is that what the Bible is really saying? Uh, I don't believe that human life is innately evil. Uh, what we've done is to literalize uh, about a 10th century before the birth of Jesus uh, myth out of the Hebrew people. Every ancient people has a, a myth of their own creation. In this particular myth, they they say that God creates the creates the world and puts... A man in it not a woman a man in it his name is Adam and then God creates all the animals they come after the man and the man names all the animals and then the man gets lonely and so God says well I'll try to make you a friend and so uh, God makes makes all the animals and the man says well these are really nice dogs and cats and bears and and pigs but they're not the kind of friend I want and and you get the sense that God is going through a trial and error period in this minute in this uh attempt to create a proper friend for Adam. And then finally the story says God finally got sort of discouraged about his ability or God's ability to create the proper friend for Adam. So he puts Adam to sleep and takes a rib from Adam's side and makes the woman. Someone said that was childbirth. as only a man who had never had a baby could have imagined it. And so we have this myth that the woman was created out of the, the rib of the man. And then God stands this woman before Adam in the myth, and, and Adam says, behold, Lord, that's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, I shall call her name woman. And her role was to be the, the helpmate, helpmeet, the Bible calls it, to the man. And so the whole idea of the, the inferiority of women comes out of that story. Now, interestingly enough, that's in Genesis chapter two. That's written about 950 or 960 before the common era. Genesis chapter 1 is a story of the 7-day creation that's written about 550 before the common era. So Genesis 1 is actually about 4 or 500 years younger than Genesis 2, but most people don't know that. But you every biblical scholar would know that. And in the first creation story, the one in in Genesis 1, God creates the male and the female instantaneously together both in the image of God. That's a very different version from the from the creation story in the second chapter. But then The second chapter tells about how the human being, primarily the woman, the woman's always the fall guy, if if, if you can call a woman a guy. (laughs) The woman's the fall guy in this story because the woman is the one who is tempted by Satan. And the woman hooks her husband, who appears to be rather weak in this narrative, into eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that people call an apple tree. But it didn't be an apple tree until Jerome wrote in the fourth century. He turned it into an apple tree. The myth grows is what I'm suggesting. And then they get banished from the presence of God. And that's, what orig- that's where original sin comes from. It comes out of this mythological understanding of the origins of evil. Now, does that mean that I don't think that human life is capable of evil? Of course not. I mean, human beings can do incredibly evil things to one another. And sometimes they do it in the name of God, in the name of religion. Uh, we've, we've witnessed that in our generation. People cut off the heads of people, people burn other people in a cage alive because they have differences about their religion and their politics too, I might add. But uh, human beings are capable of enormous evil. We've gone through a spate in the United States of African American males being killed unarmed, being killed by white policemen in this country. Now, we're capable of prejudice, we're capable of evil, but where does that come from? Does it come from the fact that we were born evil? No, I don't think so. I think we were born put, with put all sorts of human potential. Uh, the potential for evil is certainly there, but that's not the basis of our creation. Now, what happens if in human life is that every living thing, every plant, every insect, every tree, every vine, every animal, every human being, is survival-oriented. The nature of biology is to try to survive. You watch the patterns of birds and insects and animals, they're all survival patterns. None of that is conscious. You can actually take a plant from the front of your house to the back of your house and the plant will turn to receive the sun from another direction uh, because the plant is survival-oriented. That's the nature of life, is to survive. And I could tell you stories because we went around the world looking for survival stories in the subhuman world and they are everywhere now it's not conscious these plants aren't conscious these vines that snake through the forest until they come to the tallest tree so they can climb that tree and get up to the sunshine they're not thinking creatures they're doing natural things in the survival driven world of of living entities but when you get to human life we're we become self-conscious creatures. The thing that separates human beings from the rest of the animal kingdom is that we are self-conscious. We live in a dimension called time. Time simply flows through animals. Animals don't anticipate their death. Human beings do because we understand that we are creatures of time. I've never known a cow to buy life insurance. I've I've never known a dog to write out a Last Will and Testament because they don't anticipate that they are finite creatures. But we human beings do. And so the nature of human life is to be survival-oriented. I think I could take every evil that any human being ever does to any other human being, and I could root it in this quest for survival. We build ourselves up by tearing other people down. That's where all of our prejudices come from. Uh, We we will steal in order for us to survive. We will kill in order for us to survive. We will manipulate the world to our advantage. A lot of our economic system is based on that. So that's the nature of humanity. We do evil things, not because we're evil people, but because we're survival-driven biological creatures. And if the Christian faith has a meaning, it is that it calls us to transcend being driven by our own biology. That's what the Jesus story says. Jesus is not a survival-oriented person. He's someone who, when he's betrayed, loves the betrayer he's someone who when he's denied loves the denier when he's forsaken he loves the forsakers when he's persecuted he loves the persecutors when he's being killed he loves the killers that's a different kind of humanity that's a new level of consciousness and if we could tell the christ story in terms of helping us to become more deeply and fully human so that we can begin to love somebody else more than we love ourselves it becomes a powerful story that uh, still has relevance to our world so, I would say to Burl, uh, no, the idea of original sin and being born in sin, a little baby being baptized because you're going to wash the stain of Adam's sin, that's ludicrous today. I recently baptized a lovely little 11 weeks old boy. And, you know, we talked about cleansing this child from sin. I wondered what sin this little 11 year old boy had done. He hadn't committed adultery, he hadn't robbed a bank, he hadn't told a lie. Uh, he was inconvenient uh, sometimes. Babies can be quite inconvenient. Someone said they were born with a loudspeaker on one end and no sense of responsibility on the other. But those are natural. Those are not sinful acts. But we act as if being born is to be in sin. That is ludicrous. And I think we, the primary thing I think the Christian faith has got to escape is its obsession with sin. And it's everywhere. In the Protestant evangelical tradition, we sing hymns about being washed in the blood of the lamb. Mm-hmm. Uh, we sort of assume that we're evil and we're gonna get washed with Jesus' blood. What a strange idea. In the Catholic tradition, we think we're sinful inside, so we drink the blood of Jesus in the Eucharist to be cleansed inside. We're still operating on these ancient understandings of human life that are totally irrelevant to today's world. And if we don't escape that, uh, Christianity will become one more religion in the museums of human history and little more than that. I think it can be a whole lot more than that. And I'm dedicated to trying to find that. That's why I write books like A New Christianity for a New World, to get us a new way of looking at this ancient story.
1: You've touched beautifully on ideas we'd like to continue to explore. The idea of salvation and being saved, is that a word that has any currency? Should we continue to use that, or can we reimagine how to use that word?
2: Well, I don't don't like the word because I don't think it communicates much with our day, especially when... Christians tell the story of how salvation came. Uh, Salvation comes when God sends Jesus to pay the price for your sins. That's a guilt message. That doesn't do anything except tell you what a wretched, miserable, sinful person you are. And the Christian church is deep into that. Read the liturgies of our churches, Anglican and Catholic and Uniting Church. All they concentrate on sin. The primary prayer that they want us to pray in church is have mercy on us. Uh, In the Anglican tradition, and Roman Catholic too, we we have the prayer we call Kyrie eleison which is nothing except Greek for Lord have mercy and we're constantly begging for mercy. What kind of God is it that we approach begging for mercy? That's a strange idea and the idea that God wants to punish Jesus instead of you and me for our sins only turns us into being Christ killers and I don't think it's got any relevance at all. I don't think it means anything to anybody. And you hear people say, he died for my sins. We sing hymns that say it over and over again. Why is God's grace amazing? Because it saves a wretch like you two guys, or like me. That's not helpful. We go to church and we're told we're miserable offenders, that we're not worthy to gather up the crumbs under the table, that we have to grovel before God. We have to approach God on our knees because we are sinful people. Approaching God on your knees is the position of a slave to a master. It's the position of a serf to the Lord of the manor. It's the position of a beggar to the source of his next meal. That is not an appropriate posture for a child of God before the source of life and love and being, which is what I think God is. And so everything about our liturgy affirms this sense of our unworthiness. Uh, We say it over and over again. We beat our breast. We... we, uh, We sing hymns like, How Great Thou Art. And we recognize when you get to the end that the reason that we say God is great is that God has stooped to save a worm like you and me. It's all self-denigrating. I don't know why people like to go to church and be beat on uh, every Sunday morning. But some people seem to to do that. We've got to turn that message around. The purpose of the Christ is to call us to live fully and to love wastefully and to be all that we can be not to beat us up with guilt and, and sinfulness. And and so the, the liturgy of the church needs to shift. It's not, that's not an original Christian story. John's gospel has Jesus say, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. You don't get life by being told how wretched and miserable and guilty you are. I've never known a person to be helped when they're told that they were terrible. Uh, you, you encourage people. You call them into some new possibilities. You don't beat them up with, with how bad they are. Uh, no parent would raise a child like that, and I find it really strange that the Christian Church still relates to its people like that
0: Was there ever a time that this idea of salvation as needing you know being less than God and needing mercy was there ever a time that that was helpful, or did we just did we get that wrong from the start?
2: Well, I think we got it from the Jewish tradition in which we Christians were born, but we misunderstood it. The Jews had a day in their tradition called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and, and it, it goes through a lot of history. You know, if you trace it from the Book of Leviticus, where it's described to its present practice in the first century, it goes through a lot of changes, but basically, it was a time of repentance. Once a year, the people of, of the Jewish nation and the Jewish tradition gathered to talk about their sinfulness. Now they didn't do it the way we've turned it into being. What they would do was to take a lamb from their flocks. They would slaughter the lamb, and the lamb was symbolic of the yearning of human beings for perfection. And then they would put the blood of that lamb on the mercy seat of God in the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple, so that people in their sinfulness could still come to God because you came through the blood of the lamb. When we turn that into being a sacrificial offering and turn Jesus into being the lamb. They also had a goat in this liturgy. And in this part of the liturgy, they would bring the goat to the high priest in the front of the people. And the high priest would bow over the goat, maybe taking it by its horns and begin that rhythmic motion that you see at the, at the Wailing Wall, even today in Israel. And they would confess the sins of the people. And the idea was that all the sins of the people came out of the people and landed on the head and back of this goat. And then they wouldn't kill the goat. They would run the goat out into the wilderness, carrying all the sins of the people away and leaving the people sinless for one day so they could remember that that was their destiny, that was the thing for which they were born. And Christians took that. And and they didn't understand this Jewish symbolism at all. And they turned it into being a statement about how evil we are and how Jesus becomes the lamb who gets slaughtered and covers us with his blood. And, And what does it do? It turns God into an ogre. What kind of God is it that can't forgive? Uh, he's got to have a blood offering and a human sacrifice. That's a really strange idea. And, and it doesn't, it's not one that I'm drawn to. Uh, it turns God into a monster who demands a human sacrifice before God is able to forgive. It turns Jesus into kind of a masochistic person who likes to suffer. He can't wait to get on his cross and have God uh, kill him again. And it turns you and me into guilt-ridden creatures. There's nothing about that that's good. And and so I think we've got to finally get out from under this burden of what I call atonement or substitutionary atonement theology uh, because I don't think it ever gives life. Now, I think what the Christian story does say is that there's nothing you can do and nothing you can be that will finally separate you from the love of God. And that's what the Jesus story is about. It's not about dying for sin. And I'm not interested in worshiping a God who has to kill Jesus. Uh, I think if if God's job is to is to forgive sins only by abusing his son, that we've turned God into the ultimate child abuser. And for the divine father to kill the divine son in order to forgive the sins of the people, makes God a, a child abuser. I don't think there's anything edifying about that story. And it comes out of, I believe, of total misunderstanding of Jewish worship out of which the Christian church emerged. The trouble with the Christian church is that we were deeply Jewish at our birth. And by 150 of this common era, there was hardly a Jew left in the Christian tradition. And so all the symbols that are Jewish symbols, including the way we use scripture, are now interpreted by Gentiles who have no earthly understanding what those symbols meant to the Jewish people. And so you and I are living in what I call a Gentile heresy. Fundamentalism is a Gentile heresy. Uh, it, takes, it takes truths that no Jew would ever have made literal and literalizes them and then binds us into this strange kind of religion of guilt and, and not of grace. Uh, I think we can do better than that. And I think that kind of Christianity must die. I think it is dying, I think it must die. I don't think that's what the Christian faith's all about.
1: So much of the early conversation around salvation was what we needed to be saved from, and very little seemed to be surrounding or, or focusing at all on what we're called to. Can you talk to us more about what Jesus calls us to and and, and how you see that in the Scriptures in the text of, of, yeah, where are we headed?
2: Yeah, well, I think you have to redefine Jesus by redefining God. If God is is not a supernatural being who lives above the sky, who periodically invades the world to do miraculous things, and who above all else keeps notebooks on all of your sins so that you'll know whether you're going to go to heaven or go to hell at the end of your life. If that's the image of God, then you're going to come out with a moralistic religion. But if the story of salvation is that you and I have enormous potential Potential to expand our own consciousness to go beyond just being merely conscious to being self-conscious to being participating in what I call universal consciousness, I think there's something divine about human nature, and if you live deeply enough and fully enough, I think you cross the boundary and you participate in whatever that divinity is all about in those words a not great word to use as we we translate them in the in the other symbols i the fourth gospel I've just written a book a couple of years ago on the fourth gospel. And I think it's the one that tries to turn the story around. Uh, The fourth gospel makes the crucifixion the climax, not the resurrection, which is very unusual. And I think what he's trying to say is that when a human life is free enough of its survival mentality to give itself away in love, because they value other people more than they value themselves, that that's when you begin to touch the Christian story. And that's when jesus says i've come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly i think what the what the christian story is all about is that you and i are called to live fully and to love wastefully beyond all our barriers and fears and prejudices and to have the capacity to be all that we can be and at the same time to build a world where everybody else can be all that they were created to be so we don't impose our value system on other people We don't tell people of color that they're inferior and should be enslaved or segregated. We don't tell women that they're inadequate and and have to be dependent on men. We don't tell gay and lesbian people that they're mentally sick or morally depraved. They're just different. It's It's a universal reality. And for gay and lesbian people, like for all other people, your hope is that they can become all that they're capable of being within the limits of their relationship because that's, that's true for every one of us. We're all living within the limits of our own relationships. And to, to be a community that is dedicated to calling people to live, to love, and to be is something that I think this world yearns to find. Uh, I don't think we find much of that in, in the other aspects of our world. And if we could turn the Christian faith to being a place where people can come to be all that they can be, to get the capacity to love beyond their fears and beyond their boundaries and to to uh, be willing to give their lives away. The only place I know where you can make that analogy and people can understand it is by talking about when you fall in love. And it's easy for me to do because I'm married to an incredible woman and I'm as deeply in love with her today as I was the day I was born. <laughs> the day I was married, I guess. That I thought you were born. That would have been impressive. <laughs> That'd be rather prescient. But, uh, you know, I think when you're in love, you finally recognize that you care for someone else more deeply than you care for yourself. And you're willing to give up your life for the sake of the beloved. I would die for Christine if if we came down to the choice where one of us had to die in order for the other to live because I love her more than I love me. And that's a new stage of humanity. That's a new stage of consciousness. And I think that's what the goal of the Christian faith is, is to show us that we can. Get beyond the boundaries of survival and fear, and and all the barriers that we erect in our insecurity, and become deeply and fully human. And I think that's a powerful story that still resonates. And and because it resonates, I think there is a Christian future, but not if we don't escape these, these uh, guilt-producing uh, ideas of our ancient past.
1: I'm faith, and I'm far. any pigs like peace.
3: The Bible. We I once saw a Christmas tree, put to death. If only the world was made of love. Sometimes I make mistakes. Once I drew on the wall and I told my dad that I didn't
1: like his football team anymore. And he said that was a mistake. Does God want to punish me?
2: Faith is expressing uh, an attitude that most people never escape, and namely that God is a punishing parent uh, or or sort of a hanging judge. I think those are the primary images we have. That's why we approach God on our knees begging for mercy. Uh, A child doesn't approach a parent begging for mercy, it seems to me, and that's not a very appropriate way to approach the concept of God. But what has happened is that parents have used God as a super parent to enforce... Behavior control on their child. And, and that just is that's almost a universal practice. Heaven and hell uh, have nothing to do with, with reward and punishment originally, but that's the way they've come across. And you have this idea of God as a super judge keeping record books. And when you die, you face the judge and he reads off all your bad deeds and reads off your very few good deeds and decides that you aren't worthy to get into the kingdom of heaven. So he assigns you to the lake of fire this this stuff is nothing except behavior control and it's supernatural behavior control and it's designed to keep you uh, compliant and to keep you afraid and we stoked the fires of hell over Christian history to get them burning bright enough so that everybody would behave it's a very strange. Uh, no no behavior control religion ever creates life and if the purpose of, of Religion is to expand the lives of people. You don't do it by reward and punishment mentality. Every parent knows that you don't raise a child by saying, if you're a good boy, you're going to get a reward. If you're a bad boy, you're going to get a punishment. That never raises a healthy adult. And we know that on the parent level, but we still practice that on the divine human level. And I think we've got to get beyond that.
0: This concept that eternal life as spoken of in the scriptures means something other than you know, a divine utopia after our death, that's that's an incredibly challenging idea for so many people to hear. It seems to be such a foundational belief in our churches. Yes. What was it that brought you to that understanding? What was it that broke you away from the the more conventional understanding that when we die, we go to a good place or a bad place?
2: Yeah, well... It starts with you when you studied the Bible itself because the Bible does not say what you just suggested it said There's hardly any concept in the Hebrew scriptures the Old Testament about life after death the uh, the primary one is a place called Sheol Which was a shadowy place not of reward and punishment because everybody went there And yeah, that's the, it was the place of the dead the abode of the dead and it wasn't something you anticipated to look forward to and that's about all There was when you get to this maybe second maybe the third century before the common era uh, when the Jews are under persecution, and particularly during the Maccabean period when, when uh, the books of the Maccabees are written, there were illustrations of martyrs, Jewish martyrs, young Jewish kids who would die before they would compromise their faith. and And there were so many of these that the Jewish people began to say, if there's not some life after death, then God is not just, because these people are beautiful lives, they're dying to bear witness to their faith, And they're they're kids, they're 15, 18, 21 years old, and so there must be something in order for God to be just. So the idea of life after death as a place where the the unfairness of this world is addressed doesn't come into the biblical story until about the second century. When you get to the New Testament, uh, there is no hell in Paul. People don't realize, Paul is the first writer of the New Testament, he wrote between 51 and 64. Paul believes that if you live, quote, in Christ, you participate in eternity. If you're not in Christ, there is no eternity. There's no hell. There's no place of punishment. It's just that there was no life. You either in Christ or you were outside of Christ, and outside of Christ was no life. And if you would take the book of Revelation and the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, if you take those two books out of the New Testament, about 95% of all the fires of hell would disappear. They were obsessions of the writers of the book of Revelation and and Matthew's gospel. You can hardly find any reference in the others, and certainly in John's gospel. The the whole purpose in John's gospel is not to punish sinners, but to expand the life of people to a whole new dimension of what it means to be human. Uh, John's gospel used to be my least favorite, but after I studied it for five years and began to see it as an expression of what I think is Jewish mysticism, I think it became the most profound portrait of Jesus that you find in the entire New Testament.
0: I'm really touched by this, by the idea you mentioned of the, uh, particularly in relation to the Maccabees, of people facing incredible injustice. And so this idea of a life beyond this life, um, being that which redresses the injustice, uh, seems like an incredibly natural if you like, myth for us to, to tell ourselves. Um, all of us at some stage through life will experience incredible injustice, incredible pain. Maybe it's the death of a loved one or, or, or the breakdown of a relationship and we, and we feel the need. Maybe it's a psychological need or, or, or whatever it is that we need to convince ourselves or be, be feel sure that there is some cosmic balance that that happens. But if it's not that, then what does the Christian story offer us?
2: Well, that is a deeply human, even little children at age two and three know the difference between something that's fair and not fair. You'll hear a little child say, that's not fair. He got more than I did. So fairness is built into the human psyche. Uh, In the Eastern tradition, reincarnation takes the place of heaven and hell. It is what happens in the Eastern tradition. If you live a good life, you're reincarnated in a higher form of life. If you, live a, if you live an evil life, you're reincarnated into a lower level of life. And so all of that is still part of trying to make fair an unfair world. The fact is, we live in an unfair world, and you're not going to be able to change that. Uh, there's a text in, in the Corpus of Paul that uh, people mistranslated for years. It says, all things work together for good to those that love God. Well, that's just not so. And an awful lot of good people suffer. And When you go to war, an awful lot of good kids get killed. It's not just the evil kids that get killed. It's, the, it's, it's everybody that gets killed. But we now know that that's not what that text says. That text says God can work in all things for good. And not that all things work together for good, but that God can bring good out of anything. And I think that's a very different idea than the one we ought to be holding on to. Uh, the world is tragic. Uh, and a lot of what I think and say comes out of my middle-class background because I don't have any understanding of what it means to be starving in Africa or having my stomach distended because I don't have enough food to eat or having insects biting me all the time. Uh, I come out of a fairly middle-class background. And, and so whenever you are confronted with the, the tragedy of so many lives in this world, uh, you have to begin to account for it in a very different way. Uh, in the Western world, we have become quite individualistically oriented. In the Eastern world, we are still more corporately, uh, in a, uh, we we see life more corporately. That's why in the vision of life after death in the Eastern world is dropping into the great Oversoul or the great Nirvana, where your individuality might disappear, but you still participate in the in the life of the divinity, but in the Western world, it's bringing your individuality to a full kind of expression and full kind of maturity. That's expression of human yearning. And my sense is the only way that we get to that position is to know what it means to be loved. And if you are deeply and fully loved, you are free to give your life away and you're free to suffer. Uh, The world is not going to get fair. It's never going to be fair. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to talk to anybody very long to know that everybody living has carried some great burden of fear and hurt and loss. Uh, it's, it's part of our humanity, and I think we need to face it openly. Uh, again, when I wrote my book on life after death, I dedicated it to 11 people whose burials, whose deaths and burials, had been transformative experiences for me, and they were a little kid, two years old, who ingested some... Poison in a house that was not childproof. They were an 11-year-old girl who developed Hodgkin's disease and died. They were a 15-year-old boy who was found floating face down in a city swimming pool, uh, dead (coughs) of some heart disease, I expect, but uh, in a crowd of people, and they didn't know this kid wasn't just floating and pulled him out, and he was was a member of the swimming team, as a matter of fact. And young adults, uh, we have one family that I've been very close to, who had two young daughters. I met these two daughters when they were six months old and maybe four years old when they moved to our town. They were beautiful children and they grew up to be beautiful teenagers and beautiful adults. And the oldest one was killed in a mountain climbing accident when her ropes broke and she fell 400 feet to her death. And about four years later, her younger sister was eaten by a crocodile swimming off a beach in India. This one family had these two lovely girls, both of whom face tragic deaths before they were 26 years of age. Life is full of pain. What do you do with those people? You don't try to say, it's okay, God will take care of it. That's as phony as a $3 bill. I guess Australia has a $3 bill. (laughs) But, But what you do is you walk with them.
0: So you're saying that the Christian story, the Christian faith is not about avoiding or conquering that death that fear or that anxiety but is a way it's through it or is a way
2: living, with it, living with it i don't think christianity gives you peace of mind i think it gives you the courage to accept the fact that you live in a in a very fragile world and can walk with integrity into that world it's not gonna you're not gonna be winners i mean so many times i listen to these evangelists on the radio or television, and they tell you what great rewards you're going to have and what great punishments you're going to have if you don't do what they say. No, that's not what it is. It's about being fully alive. It's about embracing the reality of our existence, tragic though it is, and walking with integrity into that uh, and being fully human. That's, uh, that's what the story is about.
1: Words may not be able to answer this adequately, but... You've talked about the images that have not worked for you, of the moral judge, of the policeman in the sky. Can you speak to us about the images, the metaphors, or even the way you have now come to sense and experience God as as you know God?
2: I, I describe God as the source of life calling me to live. And if God is the source of life, the only way I can worship God is by living, by living fully. And the more fully I live, the more I think I make the life of God visible. I define god as a source of love calling me to love wastefully and i use that word quite deliberately my uh you get into some puritan circles and they're always saying waste wasting anything is sinful so that's not a good word to use but my image is that that the love of god is like a it's like a sink in the basement of your house that you plug up the The drain and you turn the faucets on and the water pours out it fills up the sink and it flows out all over the floor and it fills up every dirty crack in the floor it doesn't stop to ask whether that crack needs to be loved or deserves to be loved it just loves that's the that's the nature of what what i call the love of god and if god is the law if god is love if god is the source of love then the only way to worship god is by loving And the third category I use is one I borrowed from a theologian named Paul Tillich, a German Reformed theologian in the 20th century. And he defined God not as a being, but as the ground of being. Now, that doesn't translate to a lot of people. But if God is the ground of being, then the only way I can worship God is by having the courage to be all that I am capable of being, and building a world where everybody else has the possibility of becoming all that they can be, without my judgment determining their limits. And, and so that's the kind of, and, and, and so I worship God by having the courage to be myself and by having the courage to let other people be themselves. And that's where prejudices die. That's when I got out of my racism and out of my sexism and out of my homophobia, because that's a different kind of judgment. Uh, and so God for me is that which calls me to live and to love and to be. And the reason I'm a Christian is that when I look at Jesus, that's the kind of God I meet in Jesus. I meet a a Jesus who's so fully alive, who's so totally loving, who has the courage to be all that he can be, that he reveals the very nature of God to me. And those are not personal images. Those are sort of experiences. And I think we've got to learn to talk the language of experience. Uh, I like to say that God is not a noun that has to be defined. We spend an awful lot of time defining God and burning people at the stake if they disagree with our formulations and our definitions. I don't think that's what God is, I think God is a verb and God has to be lived and it's only in the living of the meaning of God that I think you experience the reality of that dimension of our humanity.
1: Jack Spong, thank you so much for coming Deondring, with us.
2: Well it's really been a pleasure, I've enjoyed talking to both of you and I'm glad that somebody's concerned about these issues and I think you'll find that when people listen to this program they will, they'll do two things, some will be irate and they will be more religious, and some will be hopeful because they'll see things they have not seen before. And so I think that's a great contribution that you're making. So I thank you for my privilege in being with you.
1: No worries, because that is exactly the dream and the vision. So thank you for your part in
2: it. Thank you. To find
0: out more about Bishop Spong, there's information and links on our website at beyondering.com.au.
1: And coming soon, we're going to post the full interviews we did with Bishop Spong and some of our other guests. In the podcasts you've been listening to, you you get a really good sample, but our conversation with Jack Spong, as with every guest, went for a lot longer, and there's so much gold that we weren't able to include. In the full interview with Jack Spong, we cover the new Pope, baptism, emerging challenges for the church, and all sorts of other information about Jack Spong's life and upbringing. So stay tuned for that and for other full-length interviews.
0: And don't just listen to the podcast, engage. Join in the conversation on Facebook. A private Facebook group has been created for deeper engagement. You can ask their questions you may not otherwise want to ask in public. Well, we are now halfway
1: through our first series, yet we still have so many fantastic voices to come.
0: Starting with next week with eco-theologian Michael Dowd, most known for his book, Thank God for Evolution. What we call the environment, the ancients called Yahweh, called God. As I said, the Hebrews had a personal I-thou relationship to what we call wind and breath. It wasn't just the wind, it wasn't just the breath. This was the spirit of God. You didn't need to believe in the spirit. (laughs) In fact, you know, if you're breathing, you're experiencing the spirit. And the only time you stop experiencing the spirit of God is when you die, the breath leaves you as well as the head of the progressive movement in the U.S., Fred Plummer.
1: Well, Jesus lived in a time when there were just a few people, and um, they didn't have the same kinds of world that we have today. They didn't have coal that they burned, or they didn't drive cars. So he wasn't concerned about that, because he was concerned about other things. Um, If Jesus were alive today, I'm sure he would be very concerned about the environment and many things that he says about the earth um, are indications that he thinks it's a beautiful place and don't you think we should try and take care of it too so tune in next week and thank you for coming beyond room supported by the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria
0: Join the network find resources and learn about upcoming events at pcnvictoria.blogspot.com.au and Common Dreams an alliance of religious progressives in Australia, New Zealand and the South Pacific Visit commondreams.org.au to learn more about the next Common Dreams conference to be held in Brisbane September 16th to 19th 2016 Edited by Shaz Mullins and technologically massaged by Adam Foot, but we call it soccer, Ball.